Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day. Good to have you here. Um, and you got an hour to sleep in, isn't that great? You know, it's wonderful in the spring when you have to fall back and you, no one's here. It's just, even me, I try not to preach that week just knowing it's a bummer. We, we don't like that one. But we're all fresh and, uh, and uh, awake this morning. There are a couple things I want to share with you. Next week, Heather Thomas will be here. Yes, if you remember, Heather uh, left, to, left us to go with our church plant in Salt Lake, but she'll be back sharing next week. And uh, so I hope you're all here for that. She's amazing. We're so grateful that she'd come back and visit us. As well, um, I, for the last week, was in Morocco, like I do. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I was... I was part of a, a small group of pastors, rabbis, and imams that were called together. The king of Morocco kind of called this group together, but with the sheikh, who I was told is like the pope of the Muslim world. And we were working on how do we dialogue, have a multi-faith dialogue where we, don't, uh, we disagree with each other fundamentally about certain things but we all come from the same Abrahamic sort of tradition, which calls us to love each other and work for peace, to defend the rights of each other. What was incredible about it is that it was televised across the whole Arab world. And yeah, it was an amazing moment. I just showed up. I didn't have a whole lot to do with it. I had to wear a suit, which, you know... I mean, I re- the Muslims have great outfits, and they're a lot more comfortable. So I almost, you know, shifted there for a few days. But <laughs> the funnest thing is that we just, we all want to convert each other, and we have these incredible dialogues about, I'm like, I want you to believe in Jesus. They're like, great, and I want you to become a Muslim. So, you know, we're so PC in America. We don't want to, like, step on each other's toes. And you go there and, and you're like, let's walk through the front door, let's be honest, but let's build a relationship. The exciting thing about it, and we'll, I'll talk about it more in a few months or weeks, but um, is that there's a movement to gather imams, pastors, and rabbis together in cities across America to begin these kind of humanizing relationships, whereby we agree to disagree, but we also agree that we're supposed to love each other, work together and defend the rights of religious minorities, especially in Muslim countries. And so be praying for that. We're going to gather again in February in Washington, D.C., but um, it was humbling to be able to go there, and now I'm back. So that's all I got. I'm excited about that. Also next week, uh, the Foo Fighters will be here, musical guests. Just kidding. (laughs) I feel like I'm leading a talk show or something. All right, we are in a series called The Jesus Practices, and today we're going to talk about the practice of generosity. And as we framed this series, and we've been thinking about this series for a few years, was really driving question, what does it mean to be the people of God now? 
When we live in a time in America where faith, the people of faith, are often marginalized, and, and we can ask the question, how should we posture ourselves? How do we live when people of faith have a minority voice within the culture? And some might argue that we should just baptize the culture and say, whatever it believes, we should just let go of our distinctives and so they know that Christians are nice and kind. Others would say we should leverage power and influence and money and kind of take back our influence. But as you travel through the, the story of Scripture, you see that this is not new for the people of God. The people of God have almost always found themselves in a marginalized position in whatever culture they were. And so what Scripture gives us as a lens through which we can understand our moment is this theme of exile. Exile is essentially when you find yourself in a, a place in which the structures that once validated your faith are no longer there. And so when Israel was taken captive by Babylon... All of a sudden, they woke up one day in a world where their language, their temple, their king, their sacrifices, everything about their tradition was no more. And they had to figure out, what does it mean to be the people of God now in Babylon? And through that process, they found a faithfulness that ironically they didn't find when they were themselves a nation. And so as we think about our moment, these practices that we are, we are saying as a community, we want to adopt these practices are practices that both transform us in our relationship with God, they preserve us, but they also bless and resist the culture that we live in that is very strong, that we're called to be witnesses in. And so the first practice is that we would hear and obey the scripture, that, that we would be people who are storied by the gospel and by the Bible, and our posture would be one in which we're ready to obey the Father, Son, and Spirit. The other practice would be vocation, that whatever you're called to do, you are called to contribute to human flourishing within this city of Portland. And as you do that, God has put you in specific relationships to, to live out mission and bear witness to the kingdom of God. That we are to open our homes where we invite people and welcome them in and show hospitality around our tables. That we would be the kind of people who generously embrace the other that we would be people who are formed by, by our rhythm of worship, that through Sabbath and sacrament, through worship and celebrating together once a week as a church family, our lives become shaped differently. And today we're gonna look at this final practice, which is the practice of generosity. Now, when Israel entered Babylon, Babylon was like pretty much every other empire that has ever existed. It was an empire that was built and ruled by wealth. So there was a class system that was built upon race or nobility, and that is pretty much the way all empires run. 
And so what, what they share in common with our moment in America is that to acquire wealth for the empire and for you personally is sort of a primary motive of your life. In America, the economy is king. As long as that thing keeps going up, then we feel pretty secure and pretty safe. So we live in an empire that's built upon capitalism, supply and demand, buying and selling. And one of the keys to that is to make us want things more than we need. In Babylon, the motto was everyone for himself, right? Your money, your work. And so money is this powerful thing. And in Babylon, the practice of generosity is antithetical to the primary point of money, is, which is you serve it as a master, and hopefully it will give you everything you hope for. God knew that money is a powerful thing, that money has the power to wrap itself around our hearts and literally choke out the divine life of the Spirit. Because we begin to trust that money is security, money is peace, money is pleasure, money is comfort. And so what God did is he called Israel to model a life that was free from the love of money. Free from putting money as the primary hope that they would trust God who provides and not be afraid of scarcity. And so you had this community of emancipated slaves. Israel was in slavery for 400 years, and then they're in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there's nothing. And God is literally feeding them manna from heaven and water from the rocks. And then they're going to go into the promised land. And the promised land is the bomb right? I mean, it has everything they could have ever wanted or imagined. And God understands that as they enter this land flowing with milk and honey, that they would be susceptible to the type of self-made pride that makes an idol out of things and sets us up to flee from the love of God. So I want you to hear this warning out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 14. Here's how he warns them. They're about to go in the promised land, and it says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, Vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of 
Egypt out of the land of slavery. And so as they go into the promised land, they're given this warning. Look, God has given you an abundant place to, to dwell. And your job is to walk this tightrope between receiving this abundance and understanding this is a blessing that's given to us by God. And our job is to receive it and live with open hands with which we're going to worship God and obey his commands. Because the minute that we begin to cling to the stuff, then we forget the Lord. There is something about abundance. There is something about wealth that causes spiritual amnesia for the people of God. We forget we forget our need. We forget we were once slaves in Egypt. We forget our spiritual poverty. That means we didn't do anything to earn or deserve the abundant grace God gave us. Instead, we cling when we forget. Well, they, they become a nation. They become a nation built on wealth, on power, and as all empires go, they forget the Lord. They use their money and their wealth, they exploit the poor, and there comes a day when God has had enough. And here's what he says to Israel in the book of Amos, chapter five. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me. That's bad news when God says that about how is church today. I hate comma. No way. I despise. Like he's, this is God trying to find the right word to describe how bad he feels about what you are doing. And so he says, even though you bring me your offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, I'll not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile. What it means is that the abundance, the freedom that they had wrapped around their heart and became their true God that they loved their freedom, they loved their wealth, they loved their stuff more than they loved God. And not only did they lack generosity, but they violently attacked the concept of generosity by putting, um, not just through arrogant consumption, they would just do whatever it took to save a buck. And so when you're willing to take advantage of others to get a better deal, which they were doing, they were exploiting the poor. And when you're willing to do that without regret, you've bought yourself a ticket into judgment from God. And so the people of God are always called to not forget their own poverty. 
Because if we forget our own spiritual poverty before God, we will quickly per- forget the poor who are living among us. And what's worse, we may even exploit the poor and find ourselves at war with God because God is always defending the poor and the exploited. In small but really, really significant ways, the practice of generosity is powerful because it breaks this vicious cycle of self-interest, of my money, my stuff, my things. It breaks the power and cycle of anxiety because we fear that we aren't going to have enough. What if we, if, if we let go, then we won't have enough. And so we fear scarcity. And God has told us from day one that he's a God of abundance, that his grace is sufficient, that he would come to us in our own impoverished humanity and give us everything that he had. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, have we really experienced grace? Because scripture tells us that when we taste the grace of God, when we've experienced our own spiritual poverty and God's abundant mercy, that we cannot respond with anything but generosity, but gratitude. When we truly taste the generosity of God, we will practice generosity. Well, the reality is that the God's people in the United States were not very generous. Uh, In 2011, there was a study done that said Christians in America gave 2.4% of their income to charities, to churches and other things. And so Ron Sider, who is an author, wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, said this. He said, for Christians in the richest nation in history to be giving only 2.4% of their income to their churches is not just stinginess, it's biblical disobedience, blatant sin. We've become so seduced by the pervasive consumerism and materialism of our culture that we hardly notice the ghastly disjunction between our incredible wealth and the agonizing poverty in the world. Over the last 40 years, American Christians, as we have grown progressively richer, have given smaller and smaller percentages of our growing incomes to ministries and churches. Such behavior flatly contradicts what the Bible teaches about God, about justice, about wealth. He says we should not be giving 2.4%, but 10%, 15%, 20%, 35%, or more to the kingdom work. Most of us could give 20% and not be close to poverty. That's Ron Sider in Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. When you look at the data, it seems to say that we suffer the same kind of amnesia that God warned Israel about. That we are so taken with the abundance of things that we 
can spend our money on that we begin to worry we'll be missing out on something that we couldn't buy or couldn't have or couldn't find our security in if we gave our money away. The good news is, is that it's never too late, right? Because most of us would probably, if we were honest, we would look at our checkbooks, look at our monthly budgets, look at our debt, and we go, yeah, it looks a whole lot more like the Babylon narrative than the kingdom narrative. God's dream, though, is that his people would be this alternative community, that we would live within this place of exile but we would be sustained by God. Even as we travel the aisles of a consumer culture that promises us endless pleasure, that we would be a people who prophetically stand by faith in a different story. That says, I know my poverty and it has been met by a God of abundance. I have tasted grace And I am set free from clinging to money and things. The transforming power of generosity really does usher us into another story where we're named by God as his chosen people. And we discover that we're called to love people and use things, not use people and love things. And we live in a culture that calls us to love things. But that's not our story. We use things and love people. 1 Timothy says this, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now we look at that and at first reading we just go, yeah, money's evil, but that's not what it says. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that takes us all the way back to Deuteronomy where he's saying your heart will get wrapped around the stuff and find its security in money. And what happens when that takes place is you become a servant and money becomes a master. And he says, the gospel has set you free from the love of money so that you can love God and others. There is no question that money is a powerful thing. The Bible does not recommend poverty in place of greed. But the crucial turning point for us is that we are called to be a people that love God and others, not money. The love of God and others sets us free to use money powerfully to display the kingdom. And so what happens is the people of God begin to taste the freedom that God gives us through this practice of generosity. And when we do taste that freedom, it sort of grows and multiplies like that mustard seed planted in the earth that grows into a large kingdom. I've watched people kind of get on this on-ramp to generosity where they began to, to be more and more generous. And over years, they, they actually began to set their own income, not letting their job set it. 
And as they realize we can live on this, then all of this is available to be used however God wants it. Now, some of you would go, I don't ever want that to happen to me. (laughs) The reality is that generosity is better than the oppressive kingdoms of greed and consumption. I know that you believe that. The reality is we're called to live it now. Not only does generosity transform us, right? When we practice it, we're brought into this alternative story. We're set free from that Babylon consumption. But it's also prophetic in in a way that it blesses other people, but it also resists this empire of consumption. And so what what it does is that generosity by nature recasts the divine vision of God of what it means to be neighborly, what it means to care for each other. And when we experience generosity from another person, as I know many of you have, it radically impacts us. And the reason it does is because when we are gracious, when we give away, what happens is we, the giver gets set free and the receiver gets blessed. It's this powerful transaction. As a community, you have been generous um, over the years through change for a dollar and Advent conspiracy in a variety of ways. Um, one of One of the bummers is that when you have to preach on generosity, you always hope that you don't need to ask for money for the budget because there's some of you that by nature are a little suspicious of such things. Um, But I planned this sermon way before we fell behind budget, (laughs) just so you know. The reality is we are about 100 grand behind budget at this campus and 30 grand uh, at Eastside. And, and it's really a call to say, how do we own this as a family? If all of us gave at sort of that 10% level, we would have too much money. We couldn't spend it all. And I love to make that announcement. Hey, stop giving. We can't. We don't need any more. It's too much. Um, I just haven't had to in the last 17 years make it. But one day we'll be making that. But the reality is we need to own this as a family, that as a community, that what we do together, how we serve together, how we love together, and how we give together is part of our rhythm. And so I'd ask you to pray about that because it's really important. We're not a rich congregation. Um, One of the most beautiful stories that we get to tell about every four weeks comes through change for a dollar. We put a dollar in this bucket, we've done it for several years, and it exists in a fund so that anybody outside of our community that you know who is in need, you can access that fund. Over the years, we've given away thousands and thousands of dollars, and Different stories, right? People who needed medical procedures or medical equipment, people who were getting kicked out of their house. The one common theme through every story is that when the person gives the check, 
say, hey, I'm part of a community of faith. We believe Jesus is a gracious God. We want to give you this in his name. The person receiving is shocked, right? They cry. Sometimes they wonder if there's, are you going to make me join the church now? Or like, is there some sketchy thing here? And you're going, no, we are freely giving this to you. You don't have to come to church. Um, and, and they can't quite wrap their minds around it. Why is that? Because generosity is not the way it works in Babylon. And when you find yourself in a place of need, Babylon is hostile to you. And then the kingdom shows up. And we can't even call it generosity because the dollar. It's just that collectively, there's a power when we put our dollars together. If we were to live our whole lives like that, this alternative community of God's people begin to announce and bear witness that there is a God of abundance that is ready to bless you. And it is powerful and it's prophetic. The other thing, though, is it's also, it's also a place where we resist. We resist this false narrative that our money and our time is our God. We, we, we resist this false narrative that what I really need is more. And we get to announce that giving is better than receiving and that when you give your life away, it creates more life in the world. And so generosity is a prophetic practice because it reverses the rules of Babylon and it critiques this false curse upon those who land on hard times that says you've been abandoned and you're alone and it's your fault. Generosity shows up and says God sees and God knows and God is enough. And so there is a way to freedom when we practice generosity because it's a prophetic practice. And when we do it at Advent, which is just a couple weeks away. Whoop, whoop. Um, we're, uh, it's so fun because we, we spend less at Christmas, we take an offering, and we give it to the least of these. This last year, we built eight wells in Africa. And so, yeah, it was awesome. And we just had a team go and visit. They'll be sharing in a few weeks about that. They saw the wells. But when, when June hit and you didn't remember what you didn't get at Christmas because you gave, there were literally hundreds of people getting clean water. And what that means is that girls get to go to school who prior girls wouldn't get to go to school because they had to walk miles every day to get water. Now they get an education. Moms aren't losing their children because there's clean water. All, all of that tells a prophetic story that when people were running over each other at the mall trying to get a TV, you were giving life to people in a different world. And so there's a prophetic edge to generosity that it's not just transforming of us because it is, but it blesses, but it also resists and says that we have a better story to tell. 
one of the things that, that we did with the parking lot sale is that we, none of that money goes into general budget. And so the reason we're behind budget is that money is all set aside to plant churches and to do stuff around the building. But we did tithe off of that to live generously and to know this wasn't our money, just God gave it to us. And so out of that tithe money, we were able to help um, Mark Strong's church life change. His uh, traditionally African-American church in Northeast Portland, and over the past 15 years, the demographic of Northeast Portland has changed pretty radically. And so a lot of people that were part of his congregation are now living out further southeast, and they are putting a site out there. And they had an opportunity to, to purchase a building, um, but they had a very short kind of on-ramp to get the down payment. And to be able to show up as God's people who are united in relationship with another church down the street and through some of that tithe money, we were able to give $50,000 to them to build their church. Yeah. I hope you celebrate that. Because it says that this money isn't for us or about us, or that we're competing with the church down the street, but that God raised up Mark Strong in life change to do a very unique work. And then he gave us some money that was supposed to travel through our hands and into that ministry. That's the posture. When God gives you a paycheck, is it all his or is it all yours? Do, does he get 2.4% and then we cling to the rest or is it all his? And when you realize that, man, everything was given to us by the grace of God. And so it's all free to travel through us to another person. What happens is a revolution, right? You get set free. People get blessed. And the world has a different story that they have to wrestle with because it's a much better story. So now I know as the majority of us look at our lives, we're like, okay, so what do I do? I'm upside down, I'm in debt, I'm paying off. Um, like it, it just doesn't seem like I'll ever get there. But the reality is you can be set free today as God takes you on a process of experiencing that freedom. The reason we do Financial Peace University, and if you ever see it and you're in debt, you need to get out, take it. I've watched hundreds of people pay off tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt through that. Um, so jump on board with that. But there's basically three things that I would say we need to do to move into this story of freedom through the practice of generosity. The first is remember. And what we remember is that we remember our spiritual poverty. We remember that God, who was the wealthiest of all, that Jesus became poor so that through his poverty, he would make you rich. The Apostle Paul teaches us this. The gospel story 
It's about a God who became poor so that through his poverty, he would give us the abundance of his riches. And when you remember that, when you're called to remember that, it brings a humility and a gratefulness that needs to respond in kind. Remember that you have received abundant generosity and you are going to still need it tomorrow and it'll be there for you. And after we remember, we repent. And repent means we turn around. It's not a bad word. It's a really grace-filled word. Jesus welcomes us to repent and admit that we have bought into Babylon's narrative. We have trusted money in a way that we shouldn't have. To repent that our heart got wrapped around it. To turn around is to admit that the story that you have been shaped by has ended. That you're closing the book on that. And as you close the book, you're opening up a new chapter to a better story. For some of you, that repentance might look like you're cutting up credit cards. It might look like you're creating a new account that is money that you're gonna give away but ultimately it's confessing that I am God's child, not Babylon's, and I'm ready to put his generosity on display. And so we remember, we repent, and then the final one is that we practice. The best way to ensure that our, our heart has really been set free is that we begin to practice generosity. And it doesn't have to be some massive demonstration, but you should feel it right? It should be sacrificial. There is no way to work your way out of giving. God doesn't work on a time card. So he wants us to be generous with our time and our money as whole people who live congruently in all aspects of our lives so that we can experience true whole life transformation. And so with each act, with each dollar, with each selfless expression, we get to bless and resist the Babylonian story that we're living in. And when we do this practice, we get set free and we bear witness that there is a generous God. And he has a generous people who live right here, exiled among a city that is not their home. We declare that we're following in the path of a king who saved us in our own poverty, set us free to enter into the poverty of others. And our God is not afraid of scarcity. And so we're not going to be afraid of that either. We're living as exiles in a country that's not our own. But we are free exiles who are no longer carrying the chains of greed that once strapped us down. And so this morning as we come to this table, we are practicing receiving the generosity of Jesus. As we take all that he gave up, his body, his blood, the bread and the wine, and we dine on it to receive the riches of Christ's grace. And then we turn and we're set free to go and be the generous people of God. Let's pray. 
Father, this morning as we come, I pray, Father, that you would help us with this practice. Of all the practices, this is the one that probably we are most unpracticed in. God, we want to be a people who tell the story of you with our money, with our time. We want to tell of your abundance, of your riches, and of your grace. And so God, today, would you help us to remember our own poverty, to receive your riches and mercy? Would you help us to repent and turn from the love of money to the love of you? And God, would you help us to release, to practice generosity and to let our lives be a vehicle that money flows through to you and to bless others? Thank you, God, for freedom. Because when you set us free, we are free indeed. And I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters that no one, God, would be under the bondage of debt. That no one would be under the bondage of things and more and stuff. That you would set every one of us free today, God, to love you and others. And that we could use money and love people. We pray these things in the riches of Christ's name. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.